Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Welcome to the guests who are with us today. Will you bow your heads? Let's pray and ask for God's help this morning. God, we thank you and we praise you for the privilege of gathering together as your people in your presence for your praise. Lord, we thank you and, and praise you for this opportunity to worship you, to hear from you, from your word. Lord, we confess again our own weakness, my weakness. Lord, no good will come now in these moments as we hear your word preached apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask for that. We pray that you would work even now by your spirit to bring fruit in our lives for our good, Lord, and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul <clears throat> said of his ministry and the gospel that he preached that the goal was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among all the nations, Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26. That little phrase, to bring about the obedience of faith, is like bookends on the book of Romans. True faith always leads to fruit. Faith leads to faithfulness, what Paul calls the obedience of faith. The goal of the gospel, then, is making disciples faithful to Jesus Christ, whose obedience brings glory to Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to point out this morning is that the ordinary obedience of faith honors him, that we can and we do magnify Christ in the mundane. That's what God is after. God wants your faithfulness in every area of your life. And so the message for us today is this. Give God your faithful devotion in every area of your life. Now, the laws that we're going to look at today from Deuteronomy cover a broad range of topics, and they deal with many ordinary aspects of life, and it reminds us that God's Word applies to every part of our lives, and that ordinary obedience honors God. In fact, most of the Christian life is lived out right here in the ordinary stuff of life, in the day in and the day out, in your love for each other, in your service to others. So give God your faithful devotion in every area of your life. That's the message for us. And we're going to see four ways that we live this out in our text today. So turn back to Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 12. That's our text today. And we've, we've entered into the, the, the part of the book of Deuteronomy as we preach through this book. We've entered into the part of this book where we have a bunch of miscellaneous laws. It's like that box when you're, when you're moving and you're packing up your house and you just throw a bunch of random stuff into the box and you just label it miscellaneous. Well, that's how several major sections in the next few chapters of the book of Deuteronomy are labeled. It's like the, the publishing company was like, all right, what are we going to title this section? I, I don't know. Let's just call it miscellaneous laws. <laughs> We're going to see that again and again, but we see that in our text today. 
Now, some of these laws that we're going to see over the next few weeks are obscure and they're hard to understand, yet all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen? So what that means, as we've said before, and we'll say it again, just to be clear, when it comes to applying the Old Testament, the question is not if this applies to us as Christians. The question is, how does this apply to us? All of it is useful for training in righteousness. Now, the laws that we're looking at today call for uh, upholding their neighbor and the natural order. Those are the twin themes that are running through this passage. In fact, another way that we might summarize this passage is this. Uphold your neighbor and the natural order created by God. We're to live in such a way that we love the people that God made and we love the order that God established in creation. That's the goal or the aim of these laws. This brings glory to God and good to us. We're going to see again in verse 7 that if we uh, live this way, it'll go well with us. We've seen this over and over in the book of Deuteronomy. Living any other way, that is living contrary to God's design, undermining His design, leads to misery and destruction. It will not go well with you. (laughs) I bring this up because I'm going to be coming back to verse 5 next week, and it's going to be one of the central themes of that message. Upholding God's created order leads to our good and God's glory. Amen? Amen. And that's one of the ways that we also uphold our neighbor and love our neighbor. All right, so let's dive in. God wants faithfulness in every area of life. We're going to see four ways to live that out. First, live an active, costly love. Think beyond yourself. We see this in verses 1 through 4. Look at verse 1. If you see your brother's ox or sheep wandering off, don't ignore them. Take them back to your brother. Verse 1. If he doesn't live close to you, then bring it home until he comes to get it and then restore it to him. Verse 2. Of course, that implies that you have to take care of it until he comes to get it. And do the same with his donkey, his garment, or with any lost thing that is your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. Okay, so right off the bat we see... Uh, the, the old expression, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, is not a biblical ethic. <laughs> and if you see your brother's donkey or ox fallen down, don't ignore them. Help him to lift them up again, verse 4. I want you to notice that we see uh, this uh, command not to ignore three times. Again, when you're looking at the Bible and you're studying the Bible, repeated words or phrases help you identify the theme. Like, what is God trying to say to us in this passage? You shall not see and ignore. That word means don't hide yourself from. Don't avoid, withdraw from, withhold help from. This undercuts our selfishness and our laziness and our very human tendency not to get involved, not to go out of our way to help other people. In other words, positive action is demanded from God's people. Though it costs you personally, 
notice that either they had to use their time to bring back the, the sheep that was lost, or if the guy was too far away, they had to take care of it, right? They had to use their resources to care for the sheep until the other person came and got it. There's a cost involved here. You must not ignore your brother in need because of the inconvenience, the expense, the time, or the effort involved in helping them. As Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Now, this reminds us of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus tells a story uh, about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. You remember that story. There's a man who is robbed, he's beaten, he's stripped of his clothes, and he's left for dead. This is from Luke chapter 10. And then a priest walks, he sees him, and he walks by, verse 31. And then a Levite sees him and walks by, verse 32. Both of them saw him and ignored him. Then the Samaritan came, and when he saw him, he had compassion, verse 33. His actions started with compassion in his heart. His heart moved him to help. He sees the need, and he moves to help. What does he do? He binds up his wounds, most likely tearing off some of his own clothing in the process to bind up these wounds. He treats the wounds with oil and wine to soothe them and clean them. And then he loads the man on his own animal and he takes him to an inn. This meant that the Samaritan from this point on in the journey is himself walking while the man uh, is on his animal. He takes him to an inn to rest and recover a place of relative safety, and we might think at this point, you know what, this guy's done a lot for this man, and now he's probably going to get on his journey. But that's not what he does. He stays with the man overnight, taking care of him through the night, a total stranger, giving his time and his energy, setting aside his agenda and his plans, and then the next day, he pays the innkeeper two denarii and tells him to take care of him. That would cover the man's room and board for roughly two weeks' time. And finally, he promises when he comes back, he'll pay any additional expenses. The Samaritan did everything he could to help this man. This is an active, costly love. He sacrificed his time, his effort, his goods, his schedule, his comfort to help this man. This is what loving others look like. This is faith in action. Jesus asks then, hey, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man? Do you remember what the lawyer said? The one who showed him mercy, exactly. And then Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Ah, that's a straightforward and piercing command, isn't it? The emphasis is on doing here. That's where the focus is, on faith in action. You go and do likewise. Go be this kind of person. Jesus doesn't want us to have a tidy little faith, a little comfortable faith that, that isolates itself from people and avoids people that are hard to love. He demands an active, costly love from his people. Now this parable, like our text it challenges our passivity and our self-interest. 
Positive action is demanded of us. Jesus said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Matthew 7, 12. Now, that's the golden rule. You've heard that, right? You're familiar with that. But I want you to notice that Jesus states it positively. He doesn't say, don't do what you don't want done to you. That'd be a lot easier to keep, right? Because all you have to do to keep that is just completely avoid people. Just stay away from all people and you got it. But Jesus puts it in the positive. Do to others what you want them to do to you. He's giving us an obligation. This is a call to action. Do to others what you would have them do to you. It's not enough to say, well, I didn't hurt them. I left them alone. No, God demands more of his people. So, for example, you're not fulfilling your obligation in marriage while withdrawing from your spouse, ignoring them, or withholding love from them. Jesus demands that we step up, that we step in, that we actively engage, that we love and serve our spouse. So in your marriage and with your friends and with your neighbors, go out of your way to love them. Yes, it's going to cost you. Nevertheless, this is what Jesus demands. Uh, but Michael, they don't deserve it. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps. That's probably true. That's probably true. But did you deserve Christ's love? He died for you, his enemy. Love like he did. Love your neighbor, whether they're a brother, a stranger, or an enemy. Now, in Exodus 23, 4, and 5, this law about the animals is extended even to your enemies, animals. Hey, hey, if it's an enemy's donkey or sheep, can I just ignore it? No. Take it back to him. Just as Jesus commanded, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Now, such a response, that kind of response, that kind of living can only come from God's spirit at work in our hearts. Amen? I want you to understand something, beloved. Jesus died to purchase that new heart in you. Jesus died and rose again to sever the root of selfishness and laziness in your life and in my life. He died and rose again to transform the way that you and I live on this earth. Jesus gives us his spirit so that we can love the unlovable just like he did. Though it costs you personally, you shall not see and ignore. By the Spirit, live an active, costly love. Now, I want you to remember, this is ordinary stuff. Hey, you find your neighbor's coat, you bring it back to him. You see your neighbor's donkey fell down, you help him get it back up again. It's the ordinary obedience of faith that honors God. Taking out the trash, 
helping a sibling with their homework, speaking a kind word, shoveling a neighbor's driveway, changing someone's flat tire on the side of the road, taking someone a meal. This ordinary stuff. But I want to balance this because ordinary doesn't mean easy. Foster care is ordinary, but it's not easy. It's taking care of kids, but it's not easy. Prison ministry is ordinary, but it's not easy. And I want you to see that this active, costly love must go beyond our homes. This is about helping people outside of our immediate world. Do you see that? All right, I'm going to come back to verse 5 next week, and we're going to address the subject of transgenderism in a whole sermon. So point two is going to come from verses 6 and 7. Live for the long-term gain. Think beyond the moment. We see this in verses 6 and 7. Look there with me. If you come across a bird's nest with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on them, then you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. Now, talk about ordinary. <laughs> You're out walking, and, and you see a bird's nest with eggs in it, and you fancy an omelet. <laughs> You're like, hey, eggs. Let's have some eggs. Okay, fine. You can take the eggs, but you have to leave the mother. Why? to protect the food supply and the animal population. This way, more eggs and more birds can be produced for future use. You take the mother, you take the eggs, it's gone. It's over. You leave the mother, now there's going to be more eggs and more baby birds for you to eat in the future. Food is gained without cutting off the food source for the future. It's exactly like this law that we already saw in Deuteronomy chapter 20 about not cutting down the fruit trees in times of war. You're not allowed to cut down the fruit trees because you're undercutting your future. You leave those fruit trees alone because you're going to need that food. There's a conservationist principle here, preserving a source of food for the future by not wantonly consuming it all in the present. So the law demands here a wise and respectful use of creation. It seeks to prevent short-sightedness. They've got to think beyond the moment and live with long-term gain in mind. I want you to notice that the, the law is grounded in their long-term flourishing and well-being in the land. This reminds me of fishing growing up as a kid. And we mostly fished for walleye. They don't put up a great fight, but man, are they great eating. Oh, they're delicious. Now, fishing is fun, but catching is even better. Amen, somebody. I mean, there's just times when you are out there and you just hit into the fish, and it is such a blast. You're no longer trying to catch. You're deciding, okay, which fish are we going to keep? We want the, the best, biggest fish. But there's, there's regulations with fishing, right? There's a fishing season. There's a time that you can and a time that you can't fish. And there is a limit, right? There's a, there's a limit of how many fish you can catch and keep at one time. There's also a slot size limit. Like what? For walleye in Minnesota, that means you could only keep fish that were smaller than 18 inches or bigger than 24 inches. So between 18 and 24 inches, you can't keep that. You've got to release it. What is going on? Well, you, you can 
keep the whoppers and the eaters, but you have to return the breeders, right? <laughs> the whole point here is that these regulations are designed to keep up the fish population so that people don't take too many fish and that spawning fish are given a chance to reproduce. This is about making sure that there is fish and fishing to be enjoyed by other people and by future generations. I want you to notice, the God who pities the cattle in Nineveh, Jonah 4.11, the God who, who feeds all the birds and animals of the earth, Matthew 6.26, Psalm 104, our God calls his people to care for their domestic animals, verses 1 through 4. He calls for us to care for wild animals in nature, verses 6 and 7, to treat them well and not exploit them. To be thinking and planning ahead to wisely steward natural resources of God's creation. Now, that has lots of implications. That has implications for forestry and dumping chemicals into rivers and so many other things. But that principle has broader implications for our life as well. We are to wisely limit short-term pleasure for long-term gain. God calls us to be wise and plan ahead for the future and not simply live for the moment. We should not just live for our own immediate gratification. Don't cut off the branch that you're sitting on. We've got to give thought for our future. That means at times saying no to certain things or doing other things that are necessary in order to get a greater, more long-lasting reward in the long run. So that might mean saying no to that piece of cake later so that you can lose weight. It might mean that you go to bed early so you can be fresh for work or for school in the morning. It might be saying no to a social gathering that you would really love to go to so that you can study for a test that you have the next day. It might mean not buying these little things so that you can save up your money for this other greater thing that you have in the future. The, the idea here is limiting our short-term uh, gain so that we can have a greater long-term gain. You get the idea. We're not supposed to just live for the moment, for immediate pleasure or gratification. This text calls us to think and plan ahead for the future, not just with natural resources, but in every aspect of our life. A third, we see live to value and protect life. Think of others' well-being. We see this in verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now, we don't have these kinds of roofs. They had flat roofs, right? Most of their houses were two stories. The animals lived on the first floor. They lived on the second floor. And the third floor, the roof, was like extra outdoor living space. It's like HGTV, right? Everybody wants this additional outdoor living space. Well, there it is. It's the top of their roof. They used it for all kinds of different things. If it was hot, they would sleep up there. They would host guests up there when they had people over to their homes. They, they would relax up there. They would sometimes dry their food up there. They would work up there. They did all these things. Why do I share that with you? Because in their day, it really was a possibility that you, would, you could fall off the roof. So, so God says, build a wall around your roof so that people don't fall off and hurt themselves or get killed. It's a safety measure to protect family and guests. It shows the value of human life the need to take action to do what we can to protect life, which is God's gift. And I want you to notice here that God teaches the homeowner is responsible to care about their neighbor's life. They couldn't just say, 
hey, tough, man, it's your fault you fell off my roof. You should have been more careful. Sorry. No. Like, you're responsible for those who come under your, your roof to, to look for the well-being of your neighbor's life. Now, we already looked at this principle in the Sixth Commandment. It's like the, the, the modern laws that require fences around in-ground swimming pools and other laws like that. In Illinois, residential in-ground swimming pools, you have to enclose that with a fence that's at least three and a half feet high. Last May, May of 2022, in Lawrence, Kansas, there's a four-year-old Xavier who got through the gate of the pool at his apartment complex, and he literally just went straight to the pool and jumped in. And he immediately begins drowning. The little boy was autistic. He could not shout for help. And the surveillance video is just scary. You see the kid thrashing around in the water, and after a few seconds, he sinks. Thankfully, this story has a happy ending because there was a little neighbor boy nearby who saw it, and he immediately ran to get his dad. His dad came, hopped the fence, pulled Xavier out of the pool, did CPR, and after two and a half minutes, he, he spits up the water and he starts to cry. Save the little boy's life. Thank God that that neighbor boy didn't see and ignore. Amen? Drowning is the number one cause of accidental death for people one to four years old, little kids. In the United States, on average, 10 people every day die from pool-related accidents. Now, that's not catastrophic as a number. That's not huge, right? That's not the point. The point is keeping people safe and protecting them from accidental death. What would the numbers be if we didn't have these kinds of laws in place, right? But that's the purpose of these kinds of laws. Now, if only our lawmakers would take the same kind of care and make the same kind of laws to protect the unborn children, amen? But the point is, is we have a responsibility as homeowners to look out for the well-being of all who come under our roof. So that means things like making sure that your dog is chained, or fenced up. Having a fence around your pool, having a fence around your deck, keeping ice off your driveway or your sidewalk so that people don't slip and fall and hurt themselves, things like that. More broadly, though, this principle is to defend and to protect life. We are not to put human lives in danger through our own carelessness or negligence. So drinking and driving would be an example of this. When you drink, it slows your reaction time, and it can lead to car accidents, injury, and death. Now, when I was in high school, one night some classmates of mine were out walking, three of them were out walking on a road near Mitchell Lake, Lake Mitchell, and another classmate was driving in his car, came over a hill, did not see them in time, hit one of them, and killed him. Total accident. Rocked my school, devastated this, this young guy who hit his classmate and killed him. Now, there wasn't drinking involved. He, he, it was purely an accident. But he was devastated. Could you imagine what it would be like, though, if you did have moral responsibility because you were drinking and driving and you were negligent, your own carelessness caused 
an injury or a death? It'd be terrible. The point is, is we're supposed to think and act for the well-being of others and live in such a way that values and protects human life. Finally, number four, live distinctly Christian. Think beyond the crowds and follow Christ. We're going to see this in verses 9 through 12. Now, it's going to take us a little bit more work to see this point, and I'm telling you that up front so that you hang with me. You with me? Bear with me. There are four commands in the last four verses, and the first three deal with unlawful mixtures, and the last one with wearing tassels. These laws reflect God's ordering of creation, and they remind them that God set them apart to live distinctly as his people. So first, first law, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. So, okay, say you have a vineyard, got your rows of grapevines, but you don't get to come and sow another crop in between in your vineyard, right? You're not allowed to do that. The law forbids planting another crop in between the rows. If you do, the whole harvest, both the crop and the grapes, are forfeited. That is, forfeited to the sanctuary. The word that's used here, Kadesh, means holy, removed from common use, forfeited to the sanctuary. Hence, the ESV footnote says, become holy. In other words, the harvest is now off limits to the farmer. They're not allowed to eat it. Now, many versions translate this defiled, that is, in a ritual sense, defiled. The point here, though, is mainly theological. God wants the distinction in his creation maintained. And this is a reminder of Israel's call to purity. Now, the context as we go through this is, will help confirm this. The second command that we see here is, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, just like the mixing of seeds, the mixing of animals for plowing may have had some practical reasons behind them. An ox and a donkey would be unequally yoked. They don't pull with the same strength and endurance, right? So the stronger one will wear out the weaker one. Moreover, you've got to have different harnesses for the two different animals. They don't match up, and so it's possible that one could cause the other to stumble. Those are practical reasons. But at a theological level, this would establish a bond between a clean and an unclean animal. And Paul picks up that principle, and he applies it to Christians saying this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for, or because, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship with, has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Then he quotes Leviticus and Isaiah, and he calls for Christians to live holy and separate lives because we have this promise from God that I'm going to be your God and I will dwell with you and you will be my people. Then he draws a conclusion at the end and he says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7.1. Okay, Paul is taking this law about being unequally yoked from Deuteronomy and he applies that principle to Christians, calling them to live holy lives free from every form of defilement and distinct in the world. Why? Because these opposites, 
These opposite pairs, righteousness and lawlessness, light and darkness, unbeliever, believer, they don't belong together. And this tells us that the reason for the law in Deuteronomy is mainly theological. Plowing with these animals together was about partnering clean, not partnering together, clean and unclean. And it's helping to reinforce this, the fact that Israel was to be a holy people set apart to God. Now that principle, of course, still applies to us today. We should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, bound in close fellowship, partnership with them. They have a different worldview. They have different priorities in life. They have different moral values. So being closely tied relationally with an unbeliever is either going to cause conflict or it's going to lead to compromise. It's going to make following Christ much harder. Now, we usually talk about this truth as it relates to marriage, right? Like, don't marry an unbeliever. But it's equally true with joining with an unbeliever in business or in close friendship. Now think about trying to run a business with someone who's okay cutting corners. They're okay lying to their customers. They're okay cheating with their taxes. Their, their standards for how to run a business is below the standard of integrity and morality that God lays out in his word. What's going to happen? It's either going to lead to conflict between you and them or compromise. Or think about having an unbeliever as your best friend, your BFF. <laughs> what kind of advice are they going to give you? What kind of influence are they going to have in your life? They're not going to be helping you to follow Christ. So either conflict or compromise is going to be the result. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be friends with a non-Christian. How are you going to share the gospel with them? Amen, somebody. We're entirely too isolated as Christians as it is. Somebody say amen. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. That's what Vody would say. <laughs> But this is about making your, your, your best friend, your close companion, a non-believer. You shouldn't do that. Why? Because light and darkness cannot have fellowship with each other. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. So God is clear. Don't make an unbeliever your spouse, your business partner, or your best friend. Third, this third command, and seen in the larger context of Scripture, is going to have the same theological thrust. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Now, in Leviticus 19, 19, it's, the law is even more broad. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Seems pretty straightforward. We're not told why, but this is where we got to do a little work. We're told that the fabric for the tabernacle and the garments of the priests were mixed so the curtain, the veil, the screens for the tabernacle were a combination of linen and blue-purple or scarlet yarn, which was most likely wool, woven together. Exodus 26, 1, 31, 36, 27, 16, 36, 8. You get the idea. There's a lot of references for this. Likewise, the ephod and the priestly garments were also a combination of linen and colored yarn, wool. Exodus 28, 5 through 8, 15, 39, 1 through 5. These were holy garments made for ministering in the holy place. So, for example, Exodus 39, verses 2 and 3 says this. He made the ephod of gold, that's one, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, 
two, and three, fine twine linen. And they hammered out gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and into the fine twined linen in skilled design. It's clear that the linen and the colored yarn are different materials here, being woven together. So the priestly garments are made of mixed fabrics for sure, and most likely of linen and wool. So why the prohibition here? <laughs> what? What? This is most likely for the lay people. Only the priests are allowed to wear this combination of linen and wool in their priestly service in the sanctuary. Again, the reason for this law is theological. God wanted them to maintain the distinction between holy and common. And this leads to the same principle. God's people have to live distinct, set apart, holy. Now look at the fourth commandment. It gets interesting. You shall make yourselves tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. Now, Scripture gives us more detail on this law, which is super helpful for us, confirming what we've said so far. These tassels had no practical purpose whatsoever. They're purely decorative and symbolic. And in Numbers, we learn their purpose. They're to remind God's people that they're His chosen covenant people. They're set apart to serve Him in holiness and faithfulness. So look at Numbers 15, verses 37 to 40. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at, to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you're inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So here we learn exactly what the purpose of these tassels is for. It's to remind them that they're God's people, they're supposed to keep his commands and be holy. Not following their sinful desires, but following God's ways. But did you notice that each tassel was to have one blue cord? Early rabbinic sources suggest that that blue cord was made of wool, while the rest was linen. So these tassels are an exception to the previous rule. Why? The blue cord was just like the priestly garments, and it's a link to those priestly garments. It's a reminder for the Israelites that they are all a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19, 6. They're not all priests in the official sense, but they're all a kingdom of priests. And so they have this tassel to remind them of this, to live holy and set apart. Now notice the garment here is singular. The tassels are tied on the one with which you cover yourself. This suggests it was worn on the cloak to remind them day and night to keep God's command, since the cloak was clothing by day and a blanket by night. It's a constant reminder to be faithful to the Lord, living holy and distinct lives. So this still applies. Here's what I want to point out, though. Again, this happens in the ordinary obedience of faith. <laughs> like, look, at, look at the commands in our text again. They deal with returning lost animals and other items they deal with clothing and gathering food and building codes and sewing and plowing and weaving. Most of our faith is lived in the ordinary, and ordinary obedience honors God. I was talking with a friend this week about uh, his daughter who's in college and how she's standing out in college, not because of anything extraordinary that she's doing, but because of the ordinary things that she's doing. She takes her faith seriously. 
She worships Jesus. She extends grace and forgiveness. She's patient and kind. She genuinely cares for other people around her. She's just living the normal Christian life, what we're called to do. Amen? But it's weird. (laughs) Even for the people who grew up in Christian homes, sadly, because they're not used to seeing it lived out. It makes her distinct. Just taking your faith seriously as a young person is distinctive. Now, this call to live a distinctly Christian life, it's just a call to be a faithful Christian every day, in the ordinary. Amen? We don't have tassels. What makes us distinct is the fruit of the Spirit-led life. When you regularly lead your family in worship at home, when you regularly love and serve the people around you for the sake of Christ, when you choose not to watch or listen to certain things for the sake of Christ, when you joyfully change a diaper for the sake of Christ and a thousand other things, you're living a distinctly Christian life. You magnify Christ in the mundane. Jesus died for you so that you would live for him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15. In every area of your life, the goal of the gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among all the nations. So what are the distinctive marks of a a Christian? Worship. Jesus said, loving God with all that you are is the first and greatest commandment. You treasure Christ. Loving other people. Jesus said, they're going to know you're my disciples by your love for one another. It's the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving the unlovable. Service. Jesus said, the greatest among you is going to be your servant. In fact, the slave of all. Uh, Christians, we don't wield authority and power like the world does. We're servant leaders. Obedience. Jesus said if you love him, you're going to obey his commands. And these things are lived out in the regular stuff of life. This ordinary obedience of faith honors God. Amen? Go and do likewise. Give God your faithful devotion in every area of your life. Can we pray to that end? Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you that you loved us, though we are unlovable. And we ask and pray that you would help us to love with Christ-like love. Lord, would you help us to put our faith into action every day? Lord, I don't know what it is for each one of us in this room today, but I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, bring conviction, show each one here where they need to take the next step of faith and put their faith into action. Lord, lead us all. And Lord, help us to lean into and trust your Spirit for the strength and power to live in a way that is beyond us, but not beyond you. Lord, help us to do that for your glory and for our good. And we ask that, Jesus, in your name. Amen.